0: If the outcome of one of our restorations can be that when Ross left the site, he painted a picture and that picture is what he wanted people to see. And if when we leave, the picture is as close as possible to what Ross painted or Tillinghast painted. And now this generation of members is getting to see and appreciate a golf course that the previous two or three generations never understood or, or never appreciated or just lost.
1: In the hills of central New York, in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. Our new theme music for Frankly Speaking, written, performed, and produced by Tucker Rossi. Before we get to my conversation with golf course architect and Cornell alum, Gil Hans, I'd like to talk to you about dry jack services that offer unique soil management tactics not available in a single machine. Science has demonstrated the benefit of water injection cultivation, and sand channel injection offers a unique opportunity to break through any restricting layers in your soil profile. It's a flexible and affordable service available throughout the U.S. and used by many of the great golf courses in the U.S. I've personally seen the value of this practice and now with the ability to inject non-dried sand and at several depths, it offers even more advantages. Contact your local Dry Jack service representatives or visit dryjack.com. Gil Hance is described as the hottest golf course architect in the world. A principal and partner with Jim Wagner at Hance Design, Gil was raised on Long Island his undergrad at the University of Denver, and then a master's in landscape architecture at Cornell University, where our academic careers overlapped. Welcome to Frankly Speaking, Gil. What a thrill. I am not going to keep pace with the architectural snobs I know, Brad Klein, Sean Tully, who are going to ask really smart, nuanced, artsy architectural questions that have social and environmental implications. I just am not up to that task. I'm a grass guy who spent his life studying golf courses and really it's been my relationship with you and Jim over the last five to seven years since we did the Olympic project together that I sort of came to understand the nature of the way you guys approach your work. Now, the glory of this is it's two Cornell guys who are here at the same exact time. And I want to talk about how an experience at a place like this coming from a BA at University of Denver how to come to a place like this and have it shape a philosophy that you've, I would imagine, continue to evolve as you do it. How was Cornell
0: a good place to start? Well, it was the the, the critical piece, and thanks for having me on, Frank. Um, you know, the whole saying I, you know, I would found an institution where any one any person can find instruction in any field, and I think Cornell takes that to the extreme. I mean, they allowed somebody who had never had any landscape architecture background to come into Cornell in the city and regional planning field to get my master's and then transfer after about six weeks because I met Tom Griswold, who was studying landscape architecture to become a golf course architect and just changed my life. And so then to go through the program, and obviously you've got to fulfill all the requirements, but... Every time I had a a free period, I could take a turf class or any independent study, I could apply to golf. And then you had the the Dreer Award, you know, winning that and having the opportunity and following in Tom Doak's footsteps to go over to Great Britain and spend six months in Scotland, six months in England and just soaking in all of those uh, thoughts, ideas, trying to understand how the architects of that period utilized the natural landscape to really provide the character and the strategy for their golf courses because they didn't have bulldozers they didn't have excavators they couldn't build golf courses like we can now so they had to basically accept whatever parameters the landscape had and be ingenious in figuring that out so having that opportunity uh, then coming back and finishing up my degree was was an amazing part and and people say well what you know, what are the parallels with landscape architecture and obviously it's the key thing is scale it was understanding and gra- getting an appreciation for scale and whether that scale meant somebody's backyard garden or it meant Central Park or it meant a golf course or it meant the Spanish steps it how does the how does a landscape fit into its scale and what are the the parameters and how do you adapt whatever you're doing to work within that scale and I think that you know, there were nuts and bolts stuff, you know, Marty Petrovic with turf and the engineering part of landscape architecture, which was important to what we do. But that was, I think, the best lesson I could have ever gotten was that sense of scale.
1: So it seems like there are aspects of golf course architecture that, as I would say as a student like you were, that they are foundational concepts that are important. In your case, you just emphasize the value of the perception of scale and understanding that, right? And yet what I see oftentimes are players designing golf courses and they're not really trained in landscape architecture. You probably had some golf background in your life prior to pursuing You've it. You've never in,
0: seen you play golf, so there's not much golf background. You didn't play there. any golf. No, I did. I'm just kidding. Yeah. I mean, if you look at my game, you might be like, oh, okay. I don't know if there's a golf background. There. So,
1: so my, what I'm trying to get at is, You know, I think there's value to understanding these foundational landscape architectural principles that are not part of what happens when someone who designs a golf course that doesn't understand those principles. Am I making a mountain out of a molehill? This is, you know, just for shut up, Frank, the golfers are happy and I'm not going to call out anybody, but certainly there are signature names that are get associated with players and places And that's been something you can maybe charge more for in the past. Uh, You got this guy doing this gal doing your golf course. I'm wondering what your thoughts are seeing the preponderance of players designing how much some of these foundational concepts you got at Cornell help? And by the way, this isn't a promotional video to get people to apply to Cornell University. We'll just get on the record for doing that. (laughs)
0: You know, I I think there's sort of a three-legged stool to to golf course architecture. There is the understanding of those foundational principles of landscape architecture that allows you to set a golf course softly in the landscape and to understand scale and to understand vegetation and how you blend uh, what is completely artificial landscape into a natural landscape. And not everybody believes that yields the best golf course architecture. Jim and I do. And so that has been helpful from our standpoint. Then there's the understanding of the game. And from that standpoint, there's, you know, how do you play it left to right, right to left? How does the ball lie? What are the slopes and a putting green going to do? How is a green setup going to receive a certain length of shot, et cetera? So you need to have a part of that. And then you also need the practical aspects of it. How do you build it? How do you take care of the soil? How do you grass it? How do you irrigate it? you know, how do you drain the golf course? And so and you take that three-legged stool, There are always going to be, there are very, very few people. I think maybe Pete Dye would be one that has all three legs of the stool. He was a really good amateur golfer. He understood, obviously, construction, and probably the weakest would be in the landscape, the composition of a landscape. So when you talk about a touring pro, they are obviously going to be strongest in the leg of the stool that's about playing the game. Mm-hmm. And so They're hopefully surrounding themselves with people who can provide the other parts of the puzzle, a good understanding of the landscape, and also a good practical. And and I think you find that while you're not going to see their names on any of the design credits, every successful touring professional who does golf course architecture has those people as support for him or her.
1: How much does that process change when you do a something you create out of cloth like you did at a hoopie that I'm still dying to see finished. I still haven't seen finished, uh, <laughs> but but I want to go through, you know, I was chatting with Steve Rabidou earlier. And of course he's got your work there at Wingfoot. foot, you know, you restore, you got renovations, and then you got this thing that came about in some work at pioneers, the retrovation. You know, I'm not, I'm going to leave that word out there, but, How do some of the things that you think about fitting into the landscape, how do you take that again, those foundational things, of scale and stuff, and then implement them into uh, sort of looking at pictures and making some changes? And how does that translate when you you're sort of working on top of some original cloth and you don't just want to be gravy, right? Just spill all over it like Sean Tully would. Right. Right. (laughs) You know, so tell me a little bit about marrying those two thought processes there.
0: Well, I think when you when you get to restoration or retrovation, wherever the hell you said, I can't, I don't I even know what that is. <laughs> um, that part of it, you subjugate, And well, at least Jim and I have decided that the best way to approach that is to subjugate all of those to the history and the original architect. And so as a result, you have to hope that the original guy, be it Tillinghast or Wingfoot or Ross or McKenzie, they understood those three principles, right? So they got the landscape composition right. They got the playability right. They got the practicalities of it working and functioning as a golf course right. And what has happened is that somewhere along the line, somebody—whether it's well-intentioned committees, a well-intentioned architect, people planning, tr- whatever it was—they botched up that original vision. They they took those three principles and they basically said oh well yeah we're going to change this we're going to do this we're going to do that and so a lot of times what we're trying to do is just strip away all of that and that's not to say that some places don't have good evolution i mean there, there are some good things that can occur and obviously uh the game has changed dramatically since you know from the 1920s to the 2020s so you have to take that into account as well but i think it's ultimately A trust that the original architect got those things right and then just putting back what they got right. And Jim and I talk a lot about this and I think it's important is if the outcome of one of our restorations can be that we have um, like when Ross left the site, he painted a picture and that picture is what he wanted people to see. And if when we leave, the picture is as close as possible to what Ross painted or Tillinghast painted. And now this generation of members is getting to see and appreciate a golf course that the previous two or three generations never understood or or never appreciated or just lost. And so it's, it's exciting for that group, this generation of members to go, oh, wait a second. Now we can see that Tillinghast had, you know, rectangular greens, et cetera, et cetera.
1: So focusing just specifically uh, at Wingfoot, when you then look at that property and you have to factor in wanting the next generation of golfers to appreciate it, it seems to me two things. One is I wonder what happens when the data kids take over, the Bryce DeChambeau's, the, the McFeely's take over, you know, they're thinking about the equipment and the data and the things they can do with balls that they couldn't necessarily do, as well as the resources that we have available. So that's one part of my question. But the other is, how amazing was it at Wingfoot to watch them, due to light constraints, make it so the golfers, it was fun watching them score out there, having the ability to dial it in and out. I'm wondering how much that factored in for you, the ability to do that. And then those technological adjustments you got to make because of the game is different now.
0: Yeah, the the inherent part of any truly great golf architecture is that the setup of the golf course can dictate how difficult or easy it plays day in and day out. And if you give that variety or the opportunities for, in that case, you know, John Bodenhammer and Jeff Hall to utilize everything Tilling has put into place, that's the magic sauce, right? I mean, that says that uh, if you've got... You know, you need to set it up easy because you've got a certain group playing out there. You do it. And if you're going to have the U.S. Open, you can set it up hard without having to change much of anything. It's just moving hole locations and moving T locations. So I think that setup is really critical. The flexibility and the variety in that is truly important. And then as far as the other stuff with the modern, who knows what they're going to do with this distance study. They're going to roll the ball back for the best players in the world. We don't have enough time to talk about that. But I think the other part of it is just the significant upgrades in maintenance conditions. You know, Everybody talks about the evolution of equipment and the golf ball and, and the clubs and athletes and da-da-da-da-da, but the golf courses now are maintained so pure, they're always tuned up for that one week. And so these guys are rolling into town, they're the best players in the world, and they're going to play a golf course with the best possible conditions that could be prepared for that. Yeah. So then you start to look at, I me. Mean, we get questioned more than anything, you know, if you know that they can get the greens to roll at 13 or 14. Why didn't you flatten the greens out? And it's like, well, just because they can doesn't mean they have to. <laughs> and From your and, lips and so, to
1: whoever above is listening. <laughs> right.
0: So, I mean, why would we bastardize or ruin architecture that is just, you know, and it's not a museum piece. It is living and breathing piece of art. And to take that away just because, we can do things that we couldn't do when Tillinghast built it. Yeah, you know, I always say this to people. It's like, all right, name me the best set of putting greens in the world. And rarely, rarely do you ever get anybody name a modern golf course. It's always Wingfoot or Augusta or Pinehurst or something. All right, well, if we hold that to be the highest standard of putting green construction and presentation and architecture, why would we dumb that down? You know, if everybody was saying those were the worst examples of greens in the world, then maybe there's an argument to say, hey, we need to change that. But nobody says that.
1: The Plant Food Company of Cranberry, New Jersey, founded in 1944 by Edward Platts, began formulating liquid fertilizer in 1981 for the golf industry. I became familiar with them in the late 1990s when our research at the Bethpage State Park was being initiated and they immediately wanted to support our efforts to reduce pesticide use. We found their products to be cost-effective solutions to the nutrient management needs we established in our research. Other universities, such as Rutgers in New Jersey, found plant food programs to be excellent solutions to anthracnose, performing equally to most fungicide programs. These are products built for maximizing playability. Don't take my word for it. Contact your local plant food rep and get more information. So when you talk about and use words like flexibility to give the setup and, you know, maybe softening some areas because maybe people do want to get them a little bit faster. Uh, One of the things I noticed about what people say about your golf courses, because I've been attuned to them since we started working together is gosh, they walk off and they're having fun. That was a fun golf course. Okay. Then you have, I'm not talking about the best players in the world. I'm talking about the people who are at a club on an island jutting out into the Atlantic who actually think they are the best golfers in the world (laughs) and want a challenge and then feel miserable about their game because it's such a penal design and they can't really play it well, but they'll keep going back and playing it and pay them more, turn around and say, well, that's just fun. That's easy. What have we done? Do we just not like fun in golf? What is it? That as soon as you say fun, they hear easy. As soon as you say hard, they mean I love it and I'll play more. Can you ever figure that out for yourself as you design these things?
0: No, I think that's the craziness about golfers. It's just <laughs> how we are. And, and it's the amazing thing about the game is that no matter how good you are, you always feel you can play better. You know, you always feel like you can do better. You always feel like I can I should have hit that shot. I should have done that. The magic is, is if you can create a golf course that has enough difficulty to be challenging for everybody, yet the shots appear to be simple. Like, it's a lot to do with short grass, right? If you put somebody off of a green, and even though they have to putt up and over a hump, and they're 95% of the time not going to get up and down, they still feel like, I could have hit that shot.
1: So what is it about short grass? Because this is Man, I, we, I just want everybody to know I did not rehearse this before I, <laughs> I got you on, but that's exactly where I wanted to go because what I've seen you and many other, you know, you guys in the same sort of aesthetic that you, Guy, you and Jim are in, where you're having more short grass. I mean, even some of the work we're talking about here at, at, at RTJ, we're increasing mm-hmm. the short grass. What is it about short grass that you like? Is it that it makes you feel like you can do it? I just watched a concession and those guys didn't look too good on that on that short grass <laughs> stuff. So I'm wondering, what is the appeal to you about these short grass areas that you think might where you f- might find that magic?
0: Well, there's two things. It's it is a more difficult shot for the best players in the world because they put them in a bunker. And unless they get a fried egg or plugged it, it's simple. They know it's it's muscle memory. Boom, hit the shot and go. But when you put them and as Pete Dye so famously said, when you get those class of players thinking get in trouble because it's like, all right, should I be putting this? Should I be flopping it? Should I be punching it? Should I be chipping it? Whatever club you pull, you're not a hundred percent certain unless you're, you know, fully committed to it, that that's the club. Yet the rest of us, myself included, you put us in a deep bunker and who knows what's going to happen. But if you put me on a short grass, like I said, 95% of the time, I'm not going to get up and down, but 99% of the time, I'm not going to be in my pocket. I'm not going to have just hit three bunker shots and go, screw it, I'm done, and and put the ball in my pocket. And and when Jim and I worked in Scotland at Castle Stewart, we worked with Mark Parson, and and he drilled these words into our heads, and we still talk about it to this day, is keep the golfer hopeful and engaged. If you can keep the golfer hopeful, like, I know I can hit this shot. You know, I know I can do this, and I'm I'm hopeful that the outcome is going to be good. And I'm engaged because I'm not in my pocket. I haven't hit it in a water hazard. I haven't lost a ball in the tall stuff. I'm, just, I'm still playing golf, even though I may make a seven or an eight. I'm still playing. That's the thing that short grass allows. It'll, it's, so it, it's a double-edged sword. It, harder for the better players, easier for the rest of us, and more interesting for every golfer.
1: So when you wind up doing your green surrounds with Jim, you guys prepare soil out to accommodate growing these kinds of systems. And from a maintenance perspective, I can tell you, we definitely appreciate that. And since you brought up Wagner a couple of times and he's a previous guest on the <laughs> call, there's no way we can't just give him a little bit of a hard time since we got the ability to tape it. But in, on a serious note, the, the relationship you have with Caveman, having your arm of your operation to be with guys with passion that want to work outside, work in the land and really develop the connoisseurs kind of golf course that you guys make out of cloth. How important is that caveman relationship in the whole thing you guys get to deliver?
0: Oh, it's critical because it's 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 like minded, passionate, little bit nuts um, guys, (laughs) you know, that they take that from Jim. Uh, no, it's, just, it's all of us, you know, we love what we do. And, and I think it's from that standpoint, we've all been fortunate to see a lot of really good examples of great golf and golf course architecture. And so we have a treasure trove of things to pull from as we're building. And as you said, modern day designers for a long period of time built greens, the classic age golf course architects built green complexes, which meant that it didn't just stop at the putting surface. It extended to the bunkers or the surrounds and the tie-ins, and getting everything to flow as if it was all cut out of one block of wood instead of, you know, the middle part was cut out of block and everything else was was shaped from clay. And it's just one of those things that we've always drilled in. When we have, we're lucky to have a sandy site like in Rio or a hoopy, you can just keep blending and blending and pushing and pulling and tugging and make those tie in seem so seamless that it's amazing. But when you're dealing with a USGA construction site where you're taking mix and you're bleeding out into soil, obviously not that easy, but it's still critically important to get that blend and get those lines blurred so that when the grass goes on top, it all looks like it's from the cut from the same piece.
1: And having the connection with caveman, having you guys of all like mind, gets that process a lot smoother.
0: It does. And, and it's, there's a, a much smaller learning curve. We all get along. We all have fun out on site. I mean, it really is a sort of a band of merry men traveling around building golf courses. And, and that's important. Yeah, yeah. For sure. And Jim and I have talked about this. We'd rather have guys that we all get along with and, and like, even if they're less talented than some other people, if the other guys are guys that we're just not enjoying or somebody, you know, it's just, they're kind of ruffling feathers. It's like, all right, you know, we, there's plenty of people out there that we'd rather have, good solid guys with great work ethics working with us and, and, you know, we'll figure out the rest.
1: All right. Just a couple more minutes of your time. And it's connecting one question about what's in your headphones when you're floating. Cause there's big contingent. Uh, that's pretty sure you're a deadhead, but we'll get to that in a second. <laughs> Let's start with how we've talked about design. That's attuned to the maintenance it's going to receive. You know, obviously you do a square green at sleepy hollow, Mr. Leahy there. Uh, has the ability and resources to manage, you know, complicated landscapes like that, that have got to be fun to do. But you're not doing that at a public course necessarily where the resources then will have to be aligned to take care of it. I know I've heard you say that those things have to be, you know, really aligned, I guess I want you to speak to that a little bit, maybe where it's been, you know, obviously it's successful places where we all know about. I'm wondering how you've made that work at places that might not have as many resources where you've got to make decisions based on what's able to be maintained, how important it is to find that balance.
0: Yeah, it's critically important because we don't ever want to, lack of a better way to describe it, dumb down the architecture. We don't want to say, okay, this is a private club so we can really make it sophisticated and interesting and then... This is a municipal course. So, yeah, we're just going to make it very bland and blah from an architecture standpoint. So we always want our architecture to maximize whatever advantages we get out of the site, no matter who's playing it. But then it comes down to, okay, how do we work with certain hazards? Like, you know, if we're going to do a municipal golf course, can we do 80 bunkers? No. So if we can only do 30, then how, we need to make sure we place them exactly in the, in the right location. So it works towards the design, but also functions from a maintenance standpoint. And maybe that's where we do more short grass. But at the end of the day, it's working with the superintendent to say, are we going to walk mow these greens or are you going to triplex them? All right. If we're going to triplex them, we've got to factor in all of those types of things. And just starting from Square one to make sure that we're not going to build something. Now again, we don't want to dumb down the presentation either because we take such pride in the in creating things, handcrafting, getting these little nuances and details right. And we'd rather have the trade-off and say, listen, you're, you know, we're gonna give you big, we're gonna give you one cut from tea to green. And so now you don't have to worry about rough, you don't have to worry about step cut, none of that. But we're going to build some really intricate surrounds and you're going to have to be really careful in how, or we're going to build some bunkers that tie into some native areas and you're going to have to you know, do all that by hand. And we're not going to give you, you know, there are going to be some bunkers where you're not going to be able to get a sand trap, rake in there. So it's one of those things where you're always working kind of have these trade-offs. But at the end of the day, you want the presentation to be reflective of what we believe about, you know, what we talked about earlier on that landscape presentation, but also we want it to make sure that it flatters what we hope is still sophisticated and interesting architecture.
1: It's so great that even when you have to compromise or make some decisions, you're aware of it. And again, having that foundational knowledge of putting it into scale with, of course, how you've evolved over your professional career. Uh, It's no surprise. You know, one of the articles I read is, well, once was called, one was called Hans Ascending. And the other one was called, is there a golf course Gil Hans isn't currently working on? (laughs) So I'm sure, listen, I really appreciate the generosity of your your time. And I want to let you go.
0: Just tell me you haven't seen one that says Hans Descending. We don't (laughs) want to see the Hans Descending article. That's the, if you see that, let me know.
1: Well, when. (laughs) I won't need to let you know. Wagner will be screaming in your ear about it.
0: Yeah, that's but I, true. But I do,
1: on a on a lighter note, uh, I've walked a few golf courses with you on a, on a few continents, actually. I'm not sure how many people can actually say that about hanging out with you. And uh, I see the uh, dancing bear belt. And I know you got headphones on when you're floating uh, the greens. You guys do that shaping at the end that makes it really the excellent touch. What's playing in your head?
0: So I I'm obviously a huge Dead fan and I will listen to shows, you know, there's some great apps out there now that they've got shows. I I don't listen to much of their studio music, I just love the live shows. And I'll tell you what, Dead & Company, I think is amazing. It's one of the, obviously there's nothing good about this virus and this pandemic, but one of the sad things is that Tracy and I love to go to shows and, you know, we haven't been able to go to a show for a year. And again, that's way, way down the list. That's exactly right. But it's just something that we miss. I mean, I love going, and oddly enough, so we're building this golf course in, in Nebraska, Cap Rock Ranch, and and there's only one radio station out there that you can get. And there's no cell phone service. So you can't even listen to like sh- dead shows unless you have them in, in memory. And this, of course, the one station plays country music. And I've actually started really like country music. So I've been listening to country music, kind of old, new, the whole thing. So it's, yeah, I'm fairly eclectic when it comes to music, but the dead will always be a key component of it.
1: Gil, what a joy. I hope we get to do this again, but I don't want to bother you because you got too much damn work to do and half of it's probably just trying to keep tabs on Wagner.
0: Well, that's an impossible task. 25 years, I've I've figured out that, that I can't do that.
1: Gil and his band of merry men, cavemen, that is, building golf courses around the world, got his start here at Cornell University and is currently enjoying widespread acclaim for his work with Jim Wagner collectively at Hance Design. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dry Jack, the only machine that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. And the Plant Food Company, products built for playability. You can listen to us on Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, and Stitching. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Big thanks to Gil for taking the time to chat. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management, John Kiger, graphic design, Nicole Rossi, theme music, Tucker Rossi, and executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me.